So welcome. It's really good to have uh, folks, lots of folks from from our church and lovely to see friends from Norfolk and Devon and the Isle of Dogs and Brighton all here joining us uh, as well. So you're all very, very welcome. This is the fourth year um, that we've uh, marked Lent in this way together, bringing all our midweek groups together um, and on, on Tuesday nights, inviting uh, folks from beyond our church to come and share what's on their heart to share uh, with us. Obviously, this year is a bit different because we're doing it by Zoom for the first time, um, which sadly means we can't ply you with cake as we normally would. Um, but it does mean that we can perhaps invite people who we wouldn't be able to have come and share with us, such as Shane. And we're really pleased that Shane's with us this evening. And we will have time for some questions towards the end. Um, I invite you to put those in the chat anytime if you want to do that. Um, and just to say, because it probably says on your screen as well, that we are recording, but we won't be using anything visual from the recording. It's just we'll strip the audio out and that'll go on our church uh, website um, in due course. But we're really, really pleased you're here. Um, I'm going to offer a little prayer, if that's OK, as we begin, and then we'll crack on. So let's pray. Uh, gracious God, we thank you for one another and we thank you for this space and for this time. And we pray that we would have a tangible sense of your spirit with us as we meet together in these moments. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, we pray. Amen. 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 Shane, welcome. Yeah, it's great to be with you. Thanks for having me. Oh, we're so pleased that you're able to come and join us because uh, you were due to be um, in Bournemouth for the Baptist Assembly last year. Is that right? I, I believe that is true. I, I think we've got something else lined up uh, with the Baptist yep. Assembly. But, yeah, it's wonderful to be with you. Great. Oh, well, it's so good that you've been. So you're in uh, Philadelphia. Is that right? I am. I've been in Philly for the last uh, 20 years or so. Oh. and. Um, I, right now I'm actually in North Carolina. We, we have this school bus that's been converted into a solar powered tiny house. So we're living off of that sucker and visiting our family. And it's been pretty, uh, that, that's a thing here. I don't know if it's a thing over there, but you know, these school buses get turned over and they're usually really well maintained and low miles. So, uh, people turn them into a, uh, mobile tiny house. So uh, we've got that right outside here. <laughs> nice. I think everyone is probably just envious of the fact you can go and see your relatives at the moment. We're still not allowed to do that here, um, but we're hoping that'll that'll happen soon. But yeah, that sounds great. So are you the kind of person who can do some of the converting yourself or um, I mean, I would have no idea where to start, but. Yeah, I mean, we've, we've, I guess we've gotten a lot of practice by fixing up abandoned houses. You know, that's part of what we do in North Philadelphia, but uh you know, a sewer, sewer system and a composting toilet are a little outside of what I'm used to, <laughs> but yeah. So somebody else helped, you know, do all that, but we're, uh, yeah. So we've been spending a lot of time with our family. Uh, we were planning on doing that before the pandemic. Cause I've been in Philly for 25 years. I'm an only child and only grandchild. And so I am really tight with my family. So is Katie with hers. So we're, uh, Tennessee and North Carolina are about four hours apart from where, you know, our parents are. So it's been pretty awesome. We're being real careful. And that's hence the living in a bus. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so on um, all the blurb 
uh, on the web on your website or wherever it, you, you're described as an activist, a speaker, and an author. Those are the words that seem to come up in a variety of places. And um, what does a typical day look like for an activist, speaker, and author? What does that involve? Well, Mercy, it's you know this is an unusual year for sure, but uh, our community's really been stepping up, and I, I've I've been spending a little bit of time there. Uh, going back when I can. So we, we're doing a lot of food distribution these days. Um, and it's all led by neighbors. Many of them have lived in the neighborhood longer than I have, even though I've been there, you know, a couple decades. Uh, but we, we have a, cor- a, a coronavirus testing site there. So we're testing hundreds of people um, for the virus. We're delivering bags of food to seniors. We're fixing up abandoned houses, trying to get people on the streets. I mean, it's a unique challenge to be homeless in the middle of a pandemic, you know? So um, we're, we're doing a lot uh, to try to uh, be light in the darkness, I guess you'd say. And, and that's all going on in Philly. Um, meanwhile, I'm writing a book uh, and I guess we can talk about that. I'm, I'm writing a, a little bit about a better ethic of life, you know, what it means to be uh consistently for life, not just on one issue, but to see them all as sort of interconnected. So that's what I'm writing on right now. And we have been very active, even in the middle of the coronavirus. Uh, Some of the justice issues have not gone away. In fact, some of them have just um, surfaced in new ways. I mean, the gun violence in our country, as you all know, it's just, uh, I mean, your head spins when you think about it, but we we have a hundred gun deaths a day in our country, we hit a, a record number during the pandemic. So we had 500 homicides in Philadelphia in the past year, even in, uh, in the midst of the pandemic. So there's the other uh, epidemics of gun violence and, and poverty and uh, addiction. So we're trying to, you know, uh, work with all that. I've been very active uh around the death penalty and some of these things, I know that you all are, are, you know, uh, a little bit ahead of us on <laughs> the, the uh, curve of abolishing the death penalty and things. But in case you haven't had your eyes on what's happening in our country with that, we, we um, in the past year had more federal executions than we've had uh, since the 1800s. Um, so this was really unprecedented and these are happening in the middle of the coronavirus as people are trying to save people's lives. Our, um, federal government went out of its way to execute people and opened the door to new forms of execution, including the electric chair and the gas chamber, uh, and the firing squad. So we've been very active on that. A lot of us, uh, we put our bodies in the way of the execution as much as we knew how. We unrolled, unfurled a crime scene tape and uh, held it in front of the execution van So, in, in a prayerful spirit. So we're doing what we can to try to stand up for life and for mercy. And, uh, uh, you know, I, I think if we believe that light shines in the darkness, it's a pretty amazing time to be alive right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um- I'm a bit of a, a U.S. politics nerd, um, and obviously they're laughing at me on the Zoom. I can see that. Um, I, I'm intrigued. So this last year, that figure has been higher. I hadn't realised that that was higher than for the last sort of couple of hundred years. Um, as I'm assuming that 
you're hoping for better things now there's been a change in in the white house or are there other uh, other uh, key factors that led to that being the case yeah so i i I'm, i really like that you're uh, you, you know a politics nerd i'm going to spare everybody i'll i'll let you know that we won't talk about this the whole time but i just to to go at it to, and and to throw it all out there uh our our now president uh joe biden has supported policies in the past that have actually been really detrimental um to, uh, like the 1994 crime bill uh it opened the door to new crimes that were eligible for the death penalty so in some ways those policies paved the way for Donald Trump's execution spree which again was was like nothing we haven't seen executions at that rate since the 1800s um so we had 13 executions in less than a year and states have executions too so these are just federal executions so we're going state by state to try to abolish it too we just had the first southern former confederate state abolish the death penalty um like a week ago so i'm really optimistic and joe biden is one of the folks who has changed his opinion on the death penalty and he's now uh committed to abolition so we're asking him to abolish and demolish to go ahead and demolish the execution chamber so that it can never kind of surface again yeah. so y'all can be praying with us on that and there's a lot of us that really uh believe in justice we just believe that the restorative justice that we see the bible talk about doesn't mirror the evil and the violence but it heals the wounds rather than what the death penalty does which is really just create new wounds and new victims and kind of extend the trauma of violence uh so i work with very closely with uh murder victims family members who are against the death penalty and people that were wrongfully convicted that were sentenced to death for crimes they didn't do uh in just a couple of weeks we'll have a panel on that uh, on at Red Letter Christian. So those of you that are, you know, really want to think more about this, you can uh, join us. But I know that, you know, some of those things, they have different iterations in your context, right? And in some ways, the temptation is to like point to the United States and be like, well, at least we're not that, <laughs> you know, but you kind of let yourselves off the hook sometimes. So I, I think, you know, as we have this conversation, um, I'm certainly as, as you know, across the pond here, I'm not the person to uh, prescribe what the issues are for you, but I think it's probably some of those same things of, uh, you know, do we repay evil with evil uh, what does it look like to really do restorative justice um, and, and things like welcoming immigrants and refugees, the new manifestations of fear and white supremacy and racism that uh, we, we see all over our country. I think you have some kind of uh, more polite manifestations, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so the, the state, is that Virginia where some things just, uh, changed is that right and that's quite a big yeah. big news and that even made the news out here i think so i'm guessing that's quite a big deal yeah and i've written an article about it the reason it's a big deal is because it's very clear that the death penalty in america is kind of the residue and the the descendant 
of slavery and racism, like literally where lynchings of African-Americans were happening 100 years ago is where executions are happening today. And the states that held on to slavery the longest are the same states that have held on to the death penalty. And one of those is Virginia, which is the biggest executing state in our country. If you go all the way back and in recent years, it's been the second biggest executing state, second only to Texas. So it's a massive deal that bipartisan folks came together to really think about alternatives to the death penalty. Uh, and, and I think it, it, you know, it opens the possibility towards this happening in other states, too. Almost every year, a new state abolishes. And that's been really important because we see the entire momentum of our country moving away from the death penalty. And that's why when our federal government kind of made the move to uh, go the exact opposite direction, that's not what we wanted to see. So, yeah. I wonder, um, I might not phrase this question very well, but I'm guessing there are Christians who would be on the other side of that uh, conversation as well, but there would be faith communities who would like to keep the death penalty there. I mean, how how does that conversation happen in a context of of Christians? Um, is it very clear if you're in that church, you generally be for it, and that church you wouldn't, or is it something that cuts across different Christian groups? Yeah, I mean, not only. Are there many Christians that are for it? But I would say that we could even more strongly say that without the support of Christians, the death penalty would not stand a chance in America. Um, Literally, the Bible Belt is the death belt. Uh, Where Christians have been most concentrated is where executions are happening. And, And it's also, you know, this connection to slavery is there as well. But states like Texas have Christian professing Christian governors. Um, the Department of Justice that carried out the most executions that we've seen under Donald Trump, uh, William Barr was a confessing Catholic and literally got an award for being a faithful Catholic between executing people the day before and the day after. So it's really entrenched um, in that. And that's part of why I wrote a book about this called Executing Grace because it really broke my heart that the Bible belt is the death belt, you know, Uh, and not only on the issue of the death penalty, but also when it comes to guns, our biggest gun owning demographic in America is white evangelical Christians. And so I think we've got some theology that we need to reckon with. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> and and uh, the so so on you know I grew up uh, saying that I was pro life, but I was really just thinking about the issue of abortion. And I think that, that that abortion matters. We held a town hall on abortion just two months ago, but I don't think it's the only issue that matters, right? And the fact is that myself included, many of us say say said that we're pro life, but we're really just pro-life on abortion, or we might be more accurate to say we're pro-birth or anti-abortion, because when you look at the, all the other issues of life, like the death penalty and guns and militarism, racism, police violence, Black Lives Matter, all of this, like we are um, not always the champions of life. And then sometimes 
we are on the wrong side of those issues. And so it gives me a little grace, though, because I grew up in the Bible Belt. I grew up for the death penalty. Um, I knew all the scriptures and arguments to be made that this was God's will. So as I looked at the holes in that theology and especially centered myself around Jesus, um, you know, that that's where things begin to shift. And and it gives me a lot of patience. So when I'm talking to Christians who feel exactly like I did 30 years ago. Yeah. Um, you mentioned there about um, focusing on on Jesus um, particularly. I wonder if that might sort of lead us uh, towards talking a little bit about the Red Letter Christians movement that you and, and Tony Campolo founded. Um, where did the impetus for that come from? What what led to the, the movement beginning? Actually, the first time that I had uh, heard of it was a friend of ours, a friend of Tony and I's was uh, Jim Wallace. He was getting interviewed by a, um, it was interestingly enough, in my home state of Tennessee, this was a, D, a radio DJ uh, who wasn't a Christian. He was sort of a secular Jewish country music guy. <laughs> and interestingly enough, as he's talking to Jim, he says, you know, I've read the Bible and there's parts of it that I love. And there's also parts of it that I find really confusing. And, uh, and he said, I've always liked the stuff in red though. And he was talking about, you know, the Bibles that have the words of Jesus in red. And he said, you guys seem to like that. You should call yourselves red letter Christians. <laughs> and, and so, you know, when, when that name kind of stuck and I, I've always liked when Gandhi said, uh, I love Jesus. I just wish the Christians took him more seriously. Uh, you, that, that, you know, we see this, contrast between Jesus and the life that many of us Christians live. So, you know, Red Letter Christians started with uh, the aspiration, you know, to live as if Jesus meant the stuff he said, and to have a Christianity that is um, known for love again, you know, and and known to try to take those words seriously. So uh, now, after that, we found that Ignatius and, you know, people hundreds of years ago began to differentiate the words of Jesus in red. So it's really nothing that new. But I think like what we want is a Christianity that reminds the world of Jesus. And, and uh, you know, sadly, we haven't always done that very well. And, and we don't profess to have that all figured out. But that's what we're aspiring to do. And how does um, how do you go about doing that? So, um I mean, I would say, yes, amen to, to that. So what, what does that look like? Um, is that sort of putting on events and resources? What does that consist of? Yeah, and, and first of all, I think it's important to also think about this as, as you know, a Christ-centered theology. So we're, we, um, for, I think Red Letter Christians, the idea of a, you know, Christocentric, Christ-centered theology is nothing new, but it's the idea that, Jesus is the lens, right, through which we interpret the Bible and the lens through which we understand the world. And too often we've kind of um, interpreted Jesus through the lens of the Old Testament or Paul, whereas I think that it's we should be reading the entire Bible in light of Jesus. And I'm a, I'm a big believer in the whole word, just to put that out there, you know, being the inspired, authoritative word of God. Um, and it's, it's, it's noteworthy that in the early church, one of the first debates that they had, one of the first things that was eventually ruled heresy was Marcionism, which was saying that the God that is in Jesus is better 
than the God of the Old Testament, right? That you kind of have God got born again, you know, or went through anger management and we see a new and improved version. And that was, of course, deemed a, a, a heresy. But it's interesting that they were debating that, right? That they saw these, um, this wrestling with, uh, well, what do we do with the Old Testament that says an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth? And Jesus who says, but I tell you this, you've heard it said, but I tell you, so that's, that's I think how we're, you know, our, our processing on it. And, and um, we started Red Letter Christians with um, uh, speakers and writers and leaders who really diversely, uh, you know, with the, all of our diversity reflect uh, the message of Jesus and justice. And we always say Jesus and justice are like blades of scissors. You know, they have to cut together. And, and um, uh, I, I think, you know, that's, that's what we're really interested in is kind of changing the narrative of what Christians really care about and prioritize and focusing on uh, the, the people that Jesus talks so much about, right? The least of these. And, and um, uh, the, the, the real manifestation of our faith is how it impacts the most vulnerable people in the world. As Jesus said in Matthew 25, when I was hungry, did you feed me? When I was a stranger, did you welcome me in? When I was uh, naked, did you clothe me? You know, when I was in prison, did you visit me? That, that Those are the kind of concrete manifestations of our faith. Um, and that, you know, we, we preach what Jesus preached, which is the kingdom of God. And it was, it's not just a ticket into heaven and a license to ignore the world that we live in, but we're seeking the kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And the way I would kind of uh, shorthand that is that we want to bring God's dream uh, into this world. We want to bring heaven to earth. And I'm excited about the afterlife, but Jesus talks about the before life too. You're the before death, you know, <laughs> life as well. So, yeah. Um, so if if we want to uh, call people back to, to focusing um, on Christ, to using Jesus as the lens through which we see, see other things, do you, what would you say are some of the temptations that, that take us away from that? Where, where have we been putting our energies if it hasn't been there? What, what are the other lenses through which we've been viewing things? Do you have any sense of, I mean, there, I guess there might be some differences, um, between the U.S. and here, but I'd be intrigued to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, so I, I think that, um, well, there's all kinds of forces that are trying to shape us, right? Our imaginations, our priorities, how we think about money, how we think about violence. And that's why, um, you know, uh, when I think of Jesus saying, you know, that, that he's making disciples, um, there are a whole lot of folks that are trying to make disciples or followers out of us. And uh, to follow Jesus, I think, is to really reorient everything around the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus, and sell everything we have and give it to the poor, you know, love our enemies, those really countercultural values that we see at the heart of everything Jesus is doing. And um, I, I think that what has happened in the last few years uh, in America, especially, is that we have we have surfaced the fact that we have a discipleship crisis. The church has been good at making believers, but not as good at forming disciples. And it's one thing to believe in Jesus, you know, all the doctrines of our faith, and go to worship Jesus 
on Sunday or whatever, but like Jesus didn't come just to make believers or worshipers. Jesus came to form disciples and, and folks that entire lives are reoriented by Jesus. And so that's why the scriptures, you know, they can say, they say we can have faith to move mountains and speak in the tongues of men and of angels, do all sorts of miracles and prophecies and fathom all the depths of knowledge. But if we don't have love, it's still empty. And that, that I think is what we're after. And, um, Certainly just one indication of that um, has been what when I talk about Donald Trump, I always say that Trump did not change America. He revealed America. He showed and he revealed some things about our theology and, and especially in the evangelical church. I think some real holes that we have. Um, and it became really clear that uh, one of my friends said the problem isn't that. Um, that 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 uh, folks are just one that we as we look at Donald Trump, the problem was was that many people seem to like the language and rhetoric of Donald Trump more than Jesus. Uh, we want our Savior to look more like uh, this this kind of militant, angry theology, you know, and, and so I think it surfaced all that. And I'm not partisan. I, I You'll hear me critique Joe Biden as I already have as much. I always say our fidelity is not to the donkey of the Democrats or the elephant of the Republicans, but to the Lamb of God, you know, and that's what we wrote about in Jesus for President. But I'm very concerned about the state of our country right now and the state of the church. Uh, a recent study showed that two-thirds of young people are leaving the church, two thirds. But what's new is the reason that they say that they are leaving. And the number one reason that's being uh, said is uh, because of politics and because they care about social justice. And they see a church that has largely either been accommodating to injustice or has just avoided it altogether, saying it's not about politics or this world. It's about getting souls into heaven when they die. And I think that we've, we've kind of lost our way in that. Yeah, we. Um, I was looking at some research uh, last year in the UK that was talking about um, people under 40, uh, which is a, a missing gap in the church, adults from 18 to 40. Um, and, and unless the church starts engaging with um, ecology and creation care and issues of racial justice and thing, taking up some of those, those things, then actually it's going to be very difficult to initiate a conversation with this whole age group because the social justice stuff is just so embedded in, in who they want to be and how they want to live their life. And that's yeah. a real challenge to the church. Yeah, absolutely. It's also revealed sort of a fault line of race in our country too. Um, because, you know, the, the, the whole phenomena of Donald Trump and, uh, and the rise in white supremacy that we see it's no coincidence that this came after the first black president, um, you know, in, the, in, in many ways in reaction to a massive movement around Black Lives Matter. Uh, and, and, you know, so there's been kind of this backlash or as some folks call it a white lash of um, white fear and fragility and even a nostalgia of how things used to be. Because many people, when they say, make America great again. They mean make America white again. 
And those were not just Trump flags that we saw uh, in the riot at the Capitol, but there were Confederate flags, right? There's this kind of white supremacy that goes hand in hand. There were also Jesus signs, you know? So this is all kind of embedded together. And we've got to exercise some of the demons, you know, of that uh, from ourselves, uh, you know, and from our theology. Um, and uh, uh, so I, I think that's kind of what has happened is some of the darkest demons uh, of white supremacy and fear and violence have erupted and been surfaced over the last few years in our country. And uh, uh, so we've, we've got to really reckon with that, you know, because like just as 80 percent of white Christ, white evangelical Christians were supporting Trump, 80 percent of non-white Christians were not supporting Trump. And that's why we really have to talk about race, because some white Christians, I believe, and I was one of them for a lot of my life, have been more shaped by our whiteness than by our Christ likeness. You know, it's, it's, it's that kind of culture that has created some of the um, uh, blinders that we have on our own eyes and in our theology. So we've got to lean in, I think, to the voices of, of uh, people of color right now and to find, you know, our way outside of that kind of toxic version of uh, really for us, what it is, is not, I don't, I don't even like to call it Christianity. It's a version of American nationalism that is camouflaging itself as Christianity. But, you know, if Christian means Christ-like, that becomes our litmus test. You know, like, does it look like Christ? Does it sound like Christ? Is it known for love? And that's, that's uh, but it's no, no um, surprise that young people are leaving, Right. And, and I tell young people all the time, rejecting one version of Christianity may not be the end of your faith. It may be the beginning of your faith, of a more robust and authentic faith. So, uh, you know, I think there are versions of Christianity that uh, need to be rejected in order to embrace a, a more beautiful narrative. So picking up on some of those challenges of, of, what, it, of what it might mean to be a disciple of Jesus in, in these days, how... How do you think the the pandemic has played in, into that? What kind of impact might that have had or, or go on having um, to the challenge of being a disciple? Well, I, I'm interested in hearing from some of you all too, but at least on our side of the pond over here, it, it, the, that the pandemic has continued to surface things that were already uh, kind of below the surface, right? So people that had pre-existing conditions of, 400 years of racism and inequality um, are suffering the most Um, uh, as it's been. It's often we there's a cliche, you know, that we often hear here, which is when Americans catch a cold, African-Americans catch pneumonia. So it impacts their community even in even a more dire way. And our response to it has surfaced our need for health care, our uh, 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 our mass incarceration system. There are prisons now that over half the population has COVID. Um, and, and so, you know, vulnerable populations uh, of folks. I, I just was on a call with some of the medical folk experts and they said, we are seeing the inequities in our culture right now when it comes to the distribution of the, um, uh, the, the vaccinations. White people are getting them at twice the rate uh, as people of color. So some of those things that were already there, you know, are, are kind of even more um, prominently visible right now in our country. 
I just said everybody else know that I've got a couple more things to ask and then we'll have some chance for questions. So if you've got a question you want to ask Shane, do put it in the chat. Or if that is just technologically a bit challenging, you can text me and I'll get it off my phone that I've got sitting here um, as well. And I wanted to ask you about an incident. Um, well, something that intrigued me, and I don't know whether it's a true story or not. Um, <laughs> um, but is it right that in 2011, um, you withheld a portion of your uh, tax payment as uh, sort of a protest uh, at military spending? Is, is that right? And if, if it is right, how did that work out for you? <laughs> Well, I, I will say that uh, I, I probably I'll be a little careful since we're getting recorded and broadcast. Okay. Here, but I, <laughs> okay. I will say that uh, this came from a deep concern about military spending. Right. Um, it wasn't the avoiding of taxes that we see from some folks that I won't mention by name, you know, but like <laughs> um, but it was a concern that I think it is now 56 cents of every federal discretionary dollar is going towards military spending. Um, and we see, uh, as Martin Luther King said so well, a country that continues to spend more money on military defense than on programs of social uplift is approaching a spiritual death. Um, or even as Dwight Eisenhower, one of the presidents of the United States, said, uh, every bomb that is made, every warplane that is built, in the end is theft from the poor, the folks who need health care and food and housing. So um, I, I said, you know, I want to give taxes towards the things that are uplifting and caring for our most vulnerable. But as a symbol of resistance, I reallocated the, the uh, portion that would go to military spending. And I wrote an open letter because I believe in, uh, I believe as Romans 13 says that we're to submit to the authorities, right? And so one way of submitting is to openly, uh, you know, challenge that. And ironically, I got a, a letter back from our government that said, we're looking back over your, you know, your, your tax giving and it looks like we owe you money because you make so little money. <laughs> <laughs> so I wasn't expecting that. And then my moral dilemma became whether or not to cash this uh, check from my government. But anyway, so, uh, yeah. Brilliant. Oh, well, um, I, I'm sure. I, I've always liked how uh, Dorothy Day, she said, once we've given to God what's God's, there's not a whole lot left for Caesar. <laughs> nice. Nice. I'm, I'm sure that no one in the uh, the Treasury Department will be paying attention to our, our website. I'm sure it'll be totally fine uh, on that. Um, I know a number of us here on the on the call tonight, I suspect, um, would have come across your work first through some of your books. Um, so um, follow follow me to freedom was my first uh, book um, of yours. I think one that you wrote with John. Um, yeah. uh, I loved reading, and I know a number of folks on the call tonight read Irresistible Revolution uh, when it came out as well. And how do you find the process of writing? Do you do you enjoy it, or is it? Um, a useful medium for getting the stuff out there, or do you enjoy the process of writing? Oh, I love to write. I, uh, I've had several mentors that have told me in different in different ways that we should not write unless you cannot not write. Like, so make sure it's the fire in your bones. You know, don't just go because once you write a few books, you kind of have a lot of opportunity to write. So you don't want to just put stuff out because you can. I think that's the challenge is always stepping back prayerfully to say, 
what needs to be said right now? God, what are you know, what do you want to say? And humbly, as much as I can, I want to be a mouthpiece for that, you know, and and um, and and so uh, but I also love mixing writing with the rest of my life. I always say I write best when I have dirt under my fingertips, you know, um, uh, so I, I love being in the garden. I love uh, today we're we're uh, taking donated guns and turning them into garden tools, you know? So I find that I write best when my writing intersects with my relationships, my activism, my life. So I'm not, I'm not the kind of dude that can go spend a month, you know, like throw at the pond and kick out a book. I need it to be integrated into the rest of my life. And can you tell us any more about the new book you're working on? Yeah, surely. Well, the, the, um, after writing a book on the death penalty and on gun violence, I felt like it's nice to step back and really um, weave those issues together under a broader umbrella of a consistent ethic of life, right? To say that every human being is made in the image of God and uh, anything that is crushing someone else's life or dignity is crushing God's image in the world. And that matters to God. Uh, so, so that kind of ethic of life and then extending that to think about how do we uh, uh, reduce and eradicate the need for abortion? Um, how do we, um, we, we may not save every life from gun violence, but how do we, you know, reduce the number of gun deaths? How do we build alternatives to the death penalty around the environment, especially around the Black Lives Matter movement? I think this has been one of the things that Uh, You know, there's been a response to Black Lives Matter of people saying all lives matter, you know, and I think I I kind of dig into that a little bit because my own conviction on this is that in light of our history, um, there are some things that we need to emphasize (laughs) that go against the grain of our history. And frankly, you know, uh, we even as the founders of America were writing all men are created equal. They own black folks as property and, and, you know, black bodies were sold on street corners. And we passed laws that said like the Dred Scott case that said black folks don't have any rights that white people have to acknowledge. And so a way of kind of healing the wounds of that history is to be able to emphatically say that black lives matter. And until we can say black lives matter, we don't really mean all lives matter. You know, um, I, I heard a great uh, comedian, I think Michael Shea, it was that uh, he said, when your wife comes up to you and says, baby, do you love me? You don't respond by saying, honey, I love everyone. <laughs> so I, I kind of think of it like that. You know, we've got some of our, our, uh, our family that are in the streets right now saying, I can't breathe. My life matters. And we need to be able to affirm that. And to say black lives matter doesn't mean white lives don't matter. It doesn't mean black lives matter more, you know, uh, but it's simply to, I think, emphasize something that our history has certainly um, contradicted. Well, we look forward to reading it in in due course. Um, uh, We've got some questions. We've got I've got three coming in and I've got one that's come through my phone. So we'll start with with that one. and this might pick up on the um, the tools and the guns that you were doing today. Um, just uh, Chris has asked, um, can you tell us something of, of the work that you're doing to repurpose guns? They'd like to hear a bit more about about that, if you don't mind sharing with us on it. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I'll, I'll give you just a little backdrop, which is um, 
I mean, it's really inspired by the vision of the prophets, right? Both Micah and Isaiah, you know, cast this vision of beating swords into plows and spears into pruning hooks, literally transforming uh, the instruments of death into tools of life. And that's what initially provoked our imagination on this. And I did the first weapons conversion um, uh, on the 10th anniversary of September 11th as a way of kind of saying, um, can we imagine a world where our response to violence is not another war, uh, but that we grieve the lives lost on September 11th without um, causing more lives to be lost. And so we transformed uh, a, a military weapon, an AK-47, into um, a, a shovel and a rake. And then my, my some friends of mine started doing it with guns that were donated, and they came up with the wonderful name Raw Tools, which is war flipped backwards, raw tools. So just as we're kind of flipping guns into garden tools, uh, we're turning war around. And um, so that's the the organization now that we have a network of blacksmiths all over the country. So I'm an, I'm an aspiring blacksmith and so is my <laughs> wife. And I, I'll show you just visually uh, a few of the things that we've made. So this is a, a uh, shovel that I made from the barrel of a gun. And my friend made the, the wood handle out of the gun stock, out of the wooden part of the gun. So that's one. And then this is another uh, kind of hand plow uh, that we, we have. Uh, the, and this is also the, the wooden part of the gun. And we made these little hearts out of uh, the chopped up section of the barrel. And I just started making a, let me see if I got one. Oh yeah. Um, I just started making crosses uh, out of the barrel of a gun. So I was on the phone with Justin Welby, you know, your archbishop. And uh, I told him I, I've made him one of these and I'm going to bring him when I come over. So, uh, <laughs> but, you know, we did some of this in the UK too, but we used knives that were a part of the confiscated knives or donated knives that are in bins um, that where people can get rid of their knives and we've made some really beautiful things, you know, with my friend Luke and others over there. Um, so, but that's the vision. And what we've seen is so powerful is that it's not just the symbol, you know, and the, the kind of um, poetic side of it, but there's something real that happens when we bring the forge into communities and we take guns off the streets and we invite the victims of gun violence to take the hammer. And I can't even put words to it. We call it sacramental, you know, a holy mystery, because we've seen people that have killed folks that have beaten on that gun. We've seen folks that have served in the military that have beaten uh, on these guns. We've seen survivors of uh, unimaginable violence. One of them uh, um, is a friend of mine who she, her mother was killed in the Emmanuel AME church shooting. So when Dylan Roof shot a bunch of African-American brothers and sisters in the middle of worship, and she began beating on that and weeping and naming all nine of the names of her family members and loved ones. And then afterwards, she said to me, this is Reverend Sharon Risher. She said, everything I wanted to do to Dylan Roof, I took out on that gun. And God is is healing my soul in the midst of this. So now she's, you know, she's, a, she's one of my heroes. She's an outspoken 
uh, person uh, against the death penalty, even for Dylan Roof. You know, she says he doesn't need to get killed. He needs to know Jesus's love. And he, you know, he needs to be locked up. He's dangerous. But we also hold out hope that God can even change the heart of someone um, like Dylan Roof. So it's, it's powerful work, holy work. Yeah, I love I love that. Uh, I love seeing some of those uh, those influence as well. And come to one of the questions in the chat now. And so uh, Kate's raising a, a question with us about and um, she says that once you start looking at the topic of justice, you become aware of more and more issues of injustice and how they all feed, feed in together, I guess. How do we begin to, to tackle the vast amount of issues when one feels so small among them? I guess, where do you start when you see all of the things that need doing and changing? Well, that, that's a great question, Kate. And I, I think that we begin um, with relationship, right? With a proximity to those who are marginalized. And, um, and then the issues kind of choose us. Um, the issues surface out of those relationships. And so I'm not, I'm not, when I think of activism, I don't just think about issues. I think about the names and the faces of those who are affected by them. Right. And um, I mean, I think that we can do a lot of work to study scripture, to read about social issues. But I also think that a lot of times in the church, our biggest problem is not a compassion problem. It's a proximity problem. It's a relationship problem that we don't know the people who are impacted by some of these injustices. So I always begin um, by with that to, to say that we need to be in proximity to those who are directly impacted by these injustices. Um, and nothing puts a fire in your bones uh, for justice than when the issues have names and faces, right? So when immigration is not just an issue to debate, but neighbors that we love and that we know the names of, and uh, that changes things. Uh, when I think of the death penalty, I think of my friends who are facing execution. I think of my friends that were wrongfully convicted, you know, so I think we have to put a name and face on those issues and they intersect, right? So there's been so much great work done on the intersectionality of issues of justice. Um, so it's impossible to just dissect them. Like even when I'm talking about the death penalty, I can't talk about that separate from our history of race, right? We can't talk about gun violence without also talking about um, poverty and a number of other issues, you know, that, that uh, end up intersecting with, with uh, these issues, you know, in, in, in an intersectional ways. So thanks for your question, Kate. Uh, got a question that's coming uh, from Lana, uh, who says, as you mentioned, it can often be easier to see the challenges from across the sea and, and not be able to see the wood for the trees. Um, what concerns might you have or observe in the UK church that we might be blind to by virtue of being in it um, or things we've just got used to? But perhaps you might observe and we might not even notice in the way that we might notice things the other way. Well, we're, we're working hard enough to try to get the log out of our own eye over here before I, poke, you know, try to get the speck out of yours. But I, um, so I would offer this with, a, you know, a, a, with a, a dose of humility and, and a, a, you know, questionable credibility. <laughs> but um, I, I think that we can still see 
no matter what where we are, I think you see inequities that exist in society uh, and the residue of slavery and racism and colonization. Um, so, I mean, I, I guess you could look at the House of Lords or Parliament and, and, you know, say, like, how well does it represent everyone? And there are, whether it's women or uh, voices of people of color, I think that we end up um, often having um, uh, some of those who have the privilege um, in positions of power. And I would define privilege as being able to cho- choose which, is- which issues matter and which ones don't and saying something doesn't matter because we think that it doesn't affect us, right? So even when it comes to welcoming immigrants and refugees, um, uh, showing hospitality to the foreigner, uh, I mean, these are themes all through scripture. I think that you, there's lots of beautiful things that I've seen in the UK that are miles ahead of where we're at, um, but we can always be doing more, right? Even identifying our own privilege. Uh, the fact that I, I like defining it also like entitlement is um, that some people were born on third base, but they act like they hit a triple. <laughs> you know? So sorry for the baseball analogy. I'll come up with some kind of uh, <laughs> other version of that but you know we kind of act like we earned our way here but there's many more uh factors that that have contributed to why we have the things that we have or have the platform that we have um and then i guess the last one that i would uh say is that sometimes i think you know this battle between love and fear is everywhere you know, the scripture that says perfect love casteth out fear. And a lot of times we're, we're forming policies out of fear or out of this kind of myth of scarcity rather than out of love and compassion um, and, and a hunger for everyone to have this day their daily bread. Uh, so the, the, in, in some places where you have really good social infrastructures, I mean, relatively compared to us when it comes to health care and housing and things like that. You're, you're, you're doing a lot better, I think, in some ways. Um, but you can have a house without having a home. You can have health care without having someone hold your hand when you die. And so I think no matter how good our infrastructures are, no government social systems can replace the call to love and intimacy and relationship that is one of the most fundamental calls of the church. Right. And that's why when you look at Matthew 25, they're um, timeless calls to show relational love. Right. To visit those who are in prison. Have we visited folks who are in prison? I mean, that's what Jesus said. When when you visit them, you visit me. How we care for those who are hungry or those who are sick. All of those like concrete acts of love are how we show and manifest our faithfulness to Jesus. Thanks. Yeah. Great. Thank you. I've got a question from uh, Dave and Michelle. Um, so what do you say uh, to rationalise with those Christians who seem to fly in the face of a Christ centred life with their actions um, in order to rationalise with them? Um, particularly interested in how we approach some of the very powerful churches um, in the US that might take some of the attitudes that we've discussed uh, tonight. How, how do you how do you have that conversation with people? Well, this is great. I, first of all, I guess I would start by saying, I don't know too many people 
that have changed their mind because they lost an argument. <laughs> you know, I don't know too many people that have heard a great um, exegete, you know, heard this great take on scripture that have been like, wow, you're right. I'm against the death penalty now. You know, I think maybe sometimes that happens and I don't want to, you know, cheapen the need for good theology to combat bad theology. But I think that this is why relationship is so important. Until our relationships change, I think it's hard for our hearts to change. And and our hearts, our hearts often lead our heads, right? Like that our, our minds change because of something that has moved our heart. And I, I don't think that we, we have to dissect them, you know, divorce our head from our heart. But I do think that um, rarely do we argue someone into thinking differently, but often they get moved by a relationship. And so that's why to me, we always want to keep moving people into closer proximity to those who are hurting. Uh, and and I, there's no shortcut to that, you know? Um, but um, we're in the middle of that right now. We're going to go public tomorrow with a statement signed by 200 evangelical leaders that is a statement against uh, uh, American nationalism and white supremacy as we saw it manifest itself in January 6th. But there's a lot of, ga- of names that are missing on that list. And so we want to keep inviting people to have courage right now and to speak out. And we also need more than just words. Like we need, you know, really concrete actions to show uh, that we mean what we say. Fantastic. Thank you so much. And um, my last question uh, to you is, um, what can we be praying for you? Oh, yeah, great. Well, you can pray for us as we go public, you know, with this this declaration tomorrow. Um, And um, I think really what it feels like is that in the sort of post-Trump era now, we have a lot of, there's a lot of possibility uh, for new friendships, for new wineskins, for relationships that are not just reacting to what's happening in Washington, D.C., but are really seeking what it means to be the church right now. And I I love how Dr. Martin Luther King said, the church is not meant to be the master of the state or the servant of the state. The church is meant to be the conscience of the state. We're meant to be the holy kind of conscience. So that's what we're praying for. And you could pray for us in that, um, that we would be that conscience. Um, And, um, and I think some of it is related to the young people leaving the church until we have that kind of, credibility and authority and integrity to say that we, you know, we, we're committed to love and to stand against uh, hatred and racism and injustice. Like we continue to lose, you know, there's so much kind of spiritual collateral damage that comes from that. So um, it it is a real crisis, I think in our country. And um, you can be praying for us as we continue to uh, try to be that prophetic conscience. And for me and Katie, you know, we're living in our bus. We're doing what we, we can down here. You can pray for my writing and all that. But I just uh, I love you all over there. I, I feel um, really encouraged. You know, we've got a Red Letter Christians uh, UK that's doing some great stuff. So make sure you connect up with them. Follow us on the social media and all that, because I, I really um, I think we need to be praying for each other right now. So thank you so much for the conversation tonight. Great. Thanks. Well, 
Friends, let's pray together, shall we? Let's pray. Gracious God, we're so grateful to have this time uh, together this evening. And uh, Lord, we pray for this declaration as it goes public tomorrow. We thank you for each one of the leaders who have felt able to be part of that and for the communities that they work in and represent too. We pray that more names will be added to that list and that um, this coalition uh, seeking to be the prophetic conscience of the nation might grow and grow. Uh, Lord, we pray too. Uh, Lord, for um, Shane and for Katie, and we pray that they continue to have a, a great time with their families, that you'd keep them safe as they travel um, around, and that, Lord, we uh, pray that you'd uh, bless Shane as he continues to write, and we look forward to seeing the fruit of that uh, in the future. But, Lord, we thank you for this time this evening. Thank you for Shane's willingness to be with us, and we've been able to cover such great amount of ground uh, tonight, and we pray that by your spirit it would go on um, in our hearts and minds beyond tonight and it might help us as we seek to become uh, better disciples of yours and this we pray in the name of the father the son and the holy spirit amen 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 thanks so much bless you all it's good to see your faces keep us <laughs> in your prayers Thank you so much for being with us. We really, really appreciate it. Um, friends, I'll just say next week, we're back again for our second session at Tuesday, eight o'clock, when we've got Chinny McDonald from uh, Christian Aid uh, coming back uh, to us. Um, Chinny came last year with the only Lent talk I think we managed to have in person, talking to us about racial justice, and then the pandemic hit. So she's going to come back because it's been quite a year um, in that field. So we look forward to uh, hearing more from her then. But thank you so much for joining us tonight. Really appreciate it. Uh, sleep well and I'll speak to you soon. Bye.